millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Hi, I'm John Wilson. Welcome to These Three a series in which I talk to artists, musicians, writers, directors, actors, photographers, all sorts of creative people, in fact, about their artistic lives by focusing on three key works, one that they made themselves, that they're particularly proud of, one by somebody else that they wish they'd made, and one that they're working on right now. Hi, I'm Jonathan Yeo, and I'm going to tell you about the painting I made, the painting I wish I'd made, and the painting I'm working on at the moment. We're in West London, in a back street of, uh, of Chelsea, a beautiful studio, and you've been here for several years now, and this studio has heritage in itself. You, it used to belong to the great... Scottish-Italian sculptor, pop artist, Eduardo Paolozzi. I actually came to the studio, I interviewed Paolozzi many years ago here. It's a funny thing with spaces. I've had grander, madder studios in the past, but this one somehow has a great energy in it for, 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 for making work, and that may well be what... I think he was here for 40 years before yeah. I was, and so it may well be why... It's, 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 it's hard to put your finger on what it is. It's partly the light coming from different places. It shouldn't work. It's a, it's a sculptor's studio, not a painter's studio. The light's coming from all the wrong places. But I quite like that when I'm trying to illuminate a subject in interesting ways and sometimes do things... You find things by accident that you wouldn't have thought of in advance. Your paintings are very well known because very often the subjects are very well known. Mm. For those who don't know your work, and I'm just glancing around, I can see a portrait of Maxine Peake up there. Uh, there's Idris Elba, Damien Hirst looking down upon yeah, us. De- Dennis Hopper. Dennis and a, Hopper. A, co- uh, a couple of others. Is, is that Cara Delevingne over there? There's a Cara and uh, a <laughs> bottom car. And basically, there are lots of little studies for bigger works which have sadly left my life. Um, but it's nice to have little souvenirs of, of, of some of the, you know, it's, it's a mad cross-section of people who come through. But you are known primarily as a portraitist. What yeah. is it about the face? Have you got a particular fascination and does it mean that when you meet people you are always focusing in a way on a face that maybe the rest of us in a way that we don't are you looking for something else because actually i should also say that your paintings are not just about visual representation it's about a suggestion of what 
lies beneath. That's mm. really what you're trying to get to, isn't it? Yes. So uh, traditionally, a portrait it's where you're trying to tell a story about someone. It's like a potted biography through their appearance. And I think that photography obviously can tell, tell you what someone looked like at that moment. You've got the sort of luxury of having more time with people. Uh, and, and sometimes you see things where they're not conscious of being, you know, being looked at before you start or after you finish and you go out for lunch and you see them behaving in a certain way. Because we're generally not one-dimensional people. That, and I think the fun of a portrait is you get a chance to layer in different sides to someone's personality. Mm. And therefore almost by definition, the more complex the personality is to start with, the more fun you can have with the painting. And also there's a backstory sometimes hinted at in the painting. Famously, you painted Tony Blair. It was after the Iraq War and you painted him with a poppy, um, a symbol of peace. Was he wearing that poppy when he was sitting for you? Yes, he was actually. And I took a lot of the credit for that <laughs> because it was at the end of his time in office. And we be it's, it's politicians tend to be remembered for the events and things that happened to them rather than what they're planning at the start. And all politicians' careers end in failure, <laughs> yeah. famously. Yes, exactly, yeah, especially at the moment. But I, I'd been sl- slightly paralysed by indecision about what to do with this one because that was a great opportunity in a way because we knew that he was likely to be remembered for his foreign policy. But at the same time, I didn't want to make it trite or preachy or any of this fall into any of the obvious traps. Uh, and uh, he, it was November and he came in wearing a poppy and I was like, oh, wow, I didn't, hadn't thought of that. And, it, and he was like, oh, should I take this off? I was like, no, no, don't worry. I can, I can always paint, leave it out of the painting if we don't need it. But I spotted that instantly. And the nice thing, is, as, you know, from a purely visual point of view, it's a great counterpoint to the painting, which is all blues and greys, really. And it's, yeah, at a glance, it could be blood on, 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 on his mm. lapel. Uh, and there were various other little references, the, 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 changing the Labour f- red flag to a red rose and all that sort of thing. But basically, it's a very, obviously a very European thing that we recognise that as a sort of symbol of war remembrance. I, I thought I'd left it ambiguous about whether he was... Um, looking defiant or remorseful, but most people seem to read it as just him being sort of pin- pinned down as a warmonger. I, that was probably the second time you painted Blair, wasn't it? I, I yes, first exactly, came across exactly. you when you did a series of portraits, three portraits, Tony Blair, William Hague uh, and Charles Kennedy, mm. the leaders of the three main parties during the... So it wasn't the 97 election, was it? 2001. 2001 election mm. campaign, and that was an official parliamentary commission. I think it was Tony Banks, wasn't he, who yeah. chaired the culture committee or whatever in parliament and that was a great commission and three really interesting portraits having grown up in a political household for those who don't know your father timothy yo tory mp did you have a particular fascination with politics and were you trying to bring that together with with the art i think it I was certainly conscious of having grown up around some political figures and being very interested in the personality side of it. I think that people tend to sort of see things in terms of ideas and uh, slightly caricatures when, yeah, from, from afar. Mm. But actually, I was always interested in the, in the idea of how individual personalities affected decisions that were being made and, 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 and how things played out, sometimes not in ways that are obvious on the outside. And I think that, you know, also you realise that I think we tend to polarise people, politicians, especially people in the public eye, as, you know, good or bad, black or white. And actually there's, you know, a whole range in between. And 
I was very interested in that. Yeah, the, people go into politics with good intentions, but then have to make compromises and sometimes bad decisions. And often wear a mask in public as well. I yeah, mean, you're, very trying, much so. you're trying to strip that yeah. mask away, I guess, with those yeah. portraits. Yeah, exactly. And I think, but at the same time, it was it was it was it was, it was hanging around the idea of an election. It was one of the sort of uh, earlier works where I was trying to have a parallel to conceptual idea, if you like, that it was about how well they did. So, it, yeah, I called it proportional representation. The oh, bit of yeah, they were all pun. different sizes, weren't yeah, they, those portraits? Exactly. And and so, uh, and that, that was a bit of a, yeah, a, a way of telling that story. And so, yeah, it comes back to what you were saying before. I think that you know, if, if you can tell a story about the wider picture at the same time without it overwhelming the painting and getting in the way, then that's, that's a, yeah, the more layers a, a, a work can have, especially a portrait, the better, I think. You didn't go to art school, famously. Mm. When did you first pick up a paintbrush? When did you realise that you, you could do it? Well, the, uh, I think it probably goes back to when I was at school and had what's now recognised as probably a severe case of a- a- ADD. That's attention deficit yeah, disorder. Exactly. What, you just couldn't concentrate on anything, one particular thing. Yeah, well, thing. you couldn't choose what you concentrated on. But oddly, the t- two, two things that would help concentration for people who have that, one is having music playing, which obviously wasn't possible in class. But the other thing is to be doing something you're interested in, in my case, drawing. And so I, would, I found the lessons I was able, allowed to draw through I would actually hear what was going on and remember it. Ah. The ones where I was told to stop because I wasn't concentrating and I then couldn't remember a thing because my, <laughs> my mind would wander all over the place. So it was actually, a, they had a practical side to it, but also meant that I was very often drawing the, the teachers and caricaturing them because that way I was looking at them had the extra benefit that it would make my friends laugh and they thought it was cool. But therefore, actually, that was probably quite useful training to be doing a lot of that in my teens. And... I didn't set out to be a portrait painter. I had lots of ideas about different kinds of things I wanted to do, but it was something I could do fairly easily. It was very out of fashion at the time, yeah. Yeah, in the early, mid-90s. And so the YBA yeah, uh, movement, conceptual art came back in. Exactly. And I, mean, I loved all that work, and I had a quite a, you know, eclectic taste, in, but obviously I also had to make a living. And so portraits were one thing which I could do quite easily. And so that was the way I could afford to you know, pay my way through the learning curve of my 20s. By now, you've probably painted what, hundreds, possibly thousands of portraits. I mean, do you, have you got any idea how many works that you've made? Um, certainly, I think several, se- several hundred. Several um, hundred. Uh, I, I, I probably do about 20 or 30 sort of proper paintings a year. And well, just looking around, I mean, there are dozens here in the studio in various states of... Well, some of them are finished and framed and others are stacked against the wall. Mm. And, I mean, it's just a fantastic studio, this, because there are the paintbrushes all lined up in order and a huge pile of oil paints there in front of a canvas that you're obviously midway through. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But let's start with the painting I made... It's a tricky thing because you obviously, a lot of these things are a a result of a lot of thought and effort and a labour of love. Um, Sometimes the ones that seem most magical, the ones that seem to come out of nowhere. I think one that probably has more significance than most, partly because he was a friend of mine, partly because it was the sort of main work in a little retrospective I had at the National Portrait Gallery a few years ago, was Damien Hirst. Anyway, it's interesting painting other artists because you've got that added layer of the fact of them being vaguely, loosely in the same business and 
a bit of pressure, if you like, because you want you feel that they they've got a more scrutinizing eye than some, mm. um, uh, and people will be making comparisons. Obviously, the fun of it was that you know he's he's you know a playful person, and so was interested in doing something unusual. His work is very different from mine. His in some in in a way he's you know he's a great contemporary sculptor. I think his you know the things he was originally best known for and still does spend a lot of time on his animals in vitrines where the, or the more recent stuff which is um, a sort of classical a hybrid sort of work on a grand scale so it was, a, it was a fun opportunity and the painting sort of evolved from me going him coming to the studio me going to his studio trying to get some ideas they were doing some of the formaldehyde work one day which gave me the idea we talked about it in the studio he said, oh, I could put on one of the dry suits if, if, if you like. And being Damon, he, was able, he, was able, he made a call and about 20 minutes, some, <laughs> one drops one round and he squeezed himself into this incredible sort of rubber suit. To protect uh, himself from the formaldehyde. Exactly. So that's what he used back in the day when he, would, he actually went into the tanks yeah. to, 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 to make the work. And he looks like a deep sea diver. Yes, well, that's the weird thing, isn't it? It's it's a, it's a nice ambiguous thing. I think that as soon as I saw it, you, know, you could read it as at a glance because it's got this gas mask as well. Uh, and some people thought it was he was some sort of kind of paramilitary sort of riot policeman. Others, as you say, thought he was a, he was a diver. That was enhanced by the fact that I painted it in slightly formaldehyde colours and tried to give it the impression of him maybe being submerged in in one of those tanks himself and then obviously once I'd made that connection then to put in a slight suggestive framework of a tank which is also had a slightly sort of Francis Bacon look you know, yeah, sort of like minimalist construction yeah. I thought when I saw that painting that is a reference to mm. Francis Bacon that's Damien in one of his own vitrines but of course Bacon himself mm. would often do that the, his subjects were sitting within yes. a glass case and of course Francis Bacon is a massive hero of Damien. So, I mean, there's a kind exactly. of a circularity there, isn't there? Exactly. And um, we'd been talking about Bacon as well. So that's probably partly why it was in my head. And, you know, I think there's that sort of, you know, I think the, the expression on it is, is, is mildly, is, is, is somewhere between controlling and cheeky, if that, if that sounds possible. Um, the, the pose makes him feel like he's like slightly above you, yet the sort of expression is definitely some mischievous. The idea was to sort of like the question mark about whether he's there making one of his own works or whether he's been made into one. Very good. Uh, and yeah. so it was just, it was one of those nice occasions where actually the paint, sometimes you start a painting with a fixed idea and that's what comes out. But it's also, there are other times when something evolves as you're working on it. And this is one of those, I didn't know at the start how it would end up. Because of that, possibly, the multiple stories sort of woven into it, which I think makes it something people, I notice, spend a lot of time in the museum looking at it. Yeah, the main thing, you want these works to be seen. Uh, and so um, that one's certainly one of the ones that sort of, is the first one that gets asked for whenever I'm doing a portrait show anywhere. How do you know, well, there's two questions. How do you know when a painting is finished? Because mm. I guess the temptation is to keep going and going. Mm. And actually, the interesting thing with many of your paintings is you, uh, you concentrate on the eyes, the face, the nose, the hair, but very often the background mm. and even, I don't know, the texture of a shirt mm. or some kind of artefacts that are around that give a suggestion of who that person is are often sketched in and unfinished or blurred mm. or slightly distorted. Mm. What, so at some point you just think, it is finished, but how do you know mm. when that point arrives? 
Is it instinctive? It's a, it's a good question. I'm not sure I always get it right either. <laughs> I definitely overwork some and, and wish I could undo them. Yeah, when we look at a, a scene, when if the, it, we don't take it all in in painstaking detail. We see other humans in the in the your frame of view are the most immediate thing. And yeah, probably people who are listening can test this out. But yeah, if you glance at something and glance away, the things that stay in your mind are the face, if there's another person there, or, or body language, if there are people, body language is important as well. We make judgments about the situation, whether someone's a threat or a friend or you know, any number of things in between, what their mood is, what's likely to happen next, their age, their gender, all kinds of things in a, a nanosecond, you know, without having to think about it. Yeah. We just compute all these things because that goes back so far in our DNA. We don't check out every detail of the room. We might we get a sense of their body shape and their clothing without getting all the details. And it's very interesting, actually. To, I've been working with some technology companies recently, exploring how we our mind sees things as opposed to how the cameras see things. And it's it's definitely that I think they're coming around to this idea that we are selectively editing in a very sophisticated way. And although I didn't know that at the time, my work, I guess, was based on the assumption that something like that was going on. And obviously, I do a massively exaggerated version of it. But I think that in the future, we may find ways of representing things uh, through technology that may be a bit closer to the that slightly collagey way of painting. That's interesting. Isn't it? I mean, it's what Picasso was doing, of course, mm. with cubism. We are not looking at everything at the same time and just looking at you here now in front of me and I can see aspects of the studio around. But it is distorted. The peripheral vision is unclear mm. uh, and it keeps coming and going. It's broken up. I mean... But as you say, that's sort of an unconscious decision. Mm. You didn't set out to no. do that with the paintings. You just instinctively happened to be yeah. tapping into that. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So that was the first part of the question. The second part of the question was going to be, how do you know when a painting is good? I mean, what point is the, does the satisfaction... I mean, why that Damien one? Why yeah. did that one work and other ones don't? That's a good question. I don't think you always do know when it works good or not. So quite a few works I've done, which I thought were great, um, I now look back on and realise that wasn't the case. And sometimes people told me at the time, I just chose not to listen. Um, <laughs> but I think also... And, and yeah, there's a flip side, which is sometimes you know, things get better with time. I think you have a funny thing when you're making doing anything creative, which is you obviously start off with some sort of intention. And if the work that comes out fulfills that, you maybe see it as a success. Or if it doesn't, then you don't value it in the same way as you might. And sometimes you only realise coming back to things ages afterwards that something was actually much more interesting than even you intended because Mm. of the accidents that happened while you were making it. So uh, anyway, it's a bit of a um, (laughs) long-winded way of explaining. With that one... I just felt that it, it had a power from the start. Uh, and I think the squ- a square canvas, which is interesting, uh, you know, square canvases are, uh, didn't exist really in art before the 20th century. We now got very used to them because of social media as well as Warhol mm. and lots of 20th century artists doing them. 
but they are a very... The reason I know this is because I used to buy antique frames at one point because I was making, doing collages and trying to give them make the look of old paintings. And that you couldn't buy antique frames in the square shape. Right. Um, you either had landscape, which is wide, or portrait, or portrait, which is upright, and that was that. And so, but it's interesting, I think square pictures do seem to have a power to them. Like all the kind of perspective dynamics converge on whatever you're doing. Um, so that, I think that painting I knew was going to be strong, but obviously the more it went on, the more fun we were having, the more layered into it. Uh, I, was, I, I had a good feeling about it. So the painting I made, the portrait of Damien Hirst, the painting I wish I'd made. Mm. I mean, this is a tough one, isn't it? And I'm giving you, you know, you could you could pick anything from history. It could be a cave painting that's, you know, mm. 100,000 years old. Huh. Um, or it could be something that was done last week. It's really difficult. Uh, and you mentioned Picasso, which is funny enough, I think the one I had in mind, because, just because it had a, a, a sort of powerful effect on me at a sort of formative age, you're absolutely right about how difficult it is because often you, you, mesmerizingly extraordinary things about art that's been done recently, that's done 500 years ago. I was in Rome last week looking at um, paintings over there, which I thought I knew but hadn't really realized just how extraordinary they were. And I also, actually, in, in recent years, been very conscious of how dis, sort of dis, slightly distorted our view of art history is through the prism of the um, you know, Western art history, which has you know, canonised lots of Caucasian, uh, European artists who were the ones who were able to indulge their careers uh, more easily than, 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 than other, other, other groups. And actually, you know, early on, sort of from, from discovering Frida Kahlo and Alice Neal and Gwen John, especially the sort of subtle power of some of those, and I mm. couldn't believe it, that they weren't a bigger deal. The thing that had a sort of steering effect on me was seeing a Picasso portrait of Ambroise Vollard, I think it was, who was his dealer at the time. And this is when he was going through his sudden massive cubist phase in around 1910, 1912, when he went from painting these, you know, quite nice neoclassical sort of um, uh, blue and pink periods, which I think maybe you know, slightly overrated, but then to this thing where he suddenly worked out that the world could be seen in a different way. And that sort of revolution, which he was right in the middle of, was such an extraordinary thing at the time. And I think people didn't know how to, how to really deal with it. And this was a portrait which, you know, from a distance, you can quite see, clearly see that it's supposed to be a portrait of a man and you get an idea of what he looks like. And, you know, the more closer you get to it, the more broken up and distorted it is. And you can't believe it made so much sense from a distance. And that it was it's sort of like an easy way into understanding that phase of distortion and seeing the world in different ways. It's, cubism is, in a nutshell, was about taking multiple viewpoints rather than just one. And I guess it was, a, it was a, like reaction to the takeover of photography in the early 20th century. Well, it's what actually a lot of the digital photography now, particularly that stuff that you can do on your phone. And recently mm. you showed me something you can do on your new smartphone, which is to take a, a 3D scan yeah. uh, and to represent. And then it's shown on the screen as a, as a 3D head. Picasso, in effect, was doing that 100 years ago. <laughs> Yes, in a sense, I think he, that was absolutely that idea of piecing things together, you know, and, and playing with the depths and, and, and three-dimensionality in a totally new way. I think that, as you say, that you know, suddenly we've gone in the last couple of years to having 
things on our some some of the newest phones, which and that's going to massively increase, I think, in the next few years. We, there's another revolution potentially coming in terms of three dimensional artworks, whether it's actual physical artworks or um, virtual artworks, which seem to be there and as real as something that is there. And I think that to really explore and you know, really make use of this, you know, of all these new ways of making work using three, you know, three dimensions in, a, in an entirely new way. And so I think I wouldn't be surprised if in five or ten years' time there's a whole lot of work which completely changed our view of the world again. There we are. So the portrait that Johnny Yeo wishes he had painted. I mean, it's a silly thing to ask, really, isn't it? Because you weren't around 100 years ago. But it's a painting which means something to you, uh, which has had some kind of influence. Picasso's portrait of Ambrose Voila. That was his yeah. name, was it? Yeah. OK. Where is that painting? Do you know? Um, it might be in the Picasso Museum in Paris. I think it was on loan to a show, a Cubism show, because um, uh, there were a couple of great Cubism shows when I was, around the time I was leaving school, right. which had a great effect on me. And I think that one, I think just was the one which certainly influenced my work very rapidly afterwards. Very often when you talk to an artist, whether it's a visual artist or a musician, a writer, filmmaker, and you say, you know, what's your best work? They say the next one. <laughs> uh, so the question is, the painting I'm making, um, <laughs> I mentioned it at the beginning of our chat. It's here in front of us. You're going to talk about this portrait that you're making at the moment. Mm. At first glance, it looks a lot like Elton John in his 1970s pomp. What is that? It's like a sort yeah. of like feather feather wings, wings yes. and a gold suit with yeah. flames and devil horns yes. and uh, heart-shaped rose-tinted glasses. It's not Elton John, but it's close. Who is that? Uh, my friend Dexter Fletcher has been making the movie um, Rocket Man, which you probably all know about now. And it's Taron, who I've got to know. It, it was they, they were sort of teasing me with this idea of doing a painting of him in character. And I went down to see them a few times on set and realised it was actually possibly a very interesting thing to do. Not least because obviously I like him and them and I, like, I love the, the outfit, as you say. I mean, it's not often you get to paint an outfit that's quite so flamboyant and ridiculous as that. Uh, I haven't even put the sequins on the suit yet. <laughs> so that's Taron Egerton as Elton John on yeah. the set of Rocket Man. And, and he is incredible. I mean, he does. He's incredible. He sings in it, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's got such charisma. Um, he's a lovely man. Um, and we've had a lot of fun doing this. Obviously, he's taken a risk singing it himself as well. He didn't have to do that. But he's, you know, he carries that off amazingly. There's an incredible chemistry between the actors on the film. It was a thing, one of the things I picked up. And then, obviously, all Dexter's films look beautiful as well. I think the film is, is amazing and there's lots to um, enjoy in it. But my point of view with the painting. It goes back to what we were saying before about um, you know, p trying to capture someone's identity, really, in a painting. The whole premise of portrait painting, Lucian Freud used to say, is that you have to believe that people are what they look like. That's the sort of portrait painter's credo. You have to believe that everything you need to know about someone can be worked out from their appearance. The thing I've noticed over the years painting actors is that actors are there for a more problematic subject than most, possibly politicians as well, but because they are pretending to be someone else using those same tools by how they move their face, how they dress and who they're pretending to be outwardly. 
And therefore, there's a slight sort of paradox, which is that, yeah, obviously, you're interested in a great actor because of what they've done before. But whatever they're doing now yeah. is, is, yeah, the better they are, the more successful they are at misleading you into thinking there's someone new this time. That's really interesting. I spoke to David Bailey the other day and he, I said, you know, of all the people you photograph, whether that's politicians or models um, and film stars and directors and other photographers, who, you know, who is the hardest in terms of... You know, professional groupings, the, the hardest type of person. He said, always actors. Yes. He said, because you never know who they are. Huh. And they're always in the middle of a role. And there's something about the role that they're playing at that moment that they bring to the studio. And you have to try and somehow strip mm. away that mask. So is it, is it the same trying to paint an actor then, do you think? I, think that I, I, I totally understand what he means. And I think photographers have a harder job in a way because they've got to do it in one session. I find usually what happens is everyone actually, not just actors, wear a bit of a mask. Uh, and they usually get more comfortable the second or third time you see them. Yeah, the mask drops with you, I guess, over a period of time, doesn't it? Exactly. I don't envy the job of a photographer. And I think sometimes, obviously, Bailey's a great one um, at sort of cutting through things in conversation and uh, <laughs> making people sort of, like, you know, lose their... Uh, he charms the mask off. Yeah, usually, exactly. You're never quite sure, even if they are you know, not in character, that they're not just playing the part of the artist's model that day, you know. What's unusual about this picture is, of course, that the character he's playing is someone we also know from the real world. Again, he's playing him very convincingly. We do know that he's Taron, but at the same time, a lot, you know, we are registering so many signs of Elton. And it's a very interesting thing. So this, this question of, of where does... Is there a point, a tipping point, where he stops being himself and starts becoming the character? That's obviously the case with all actors. But I think with this one, because we also know the end point, we know where he, what he's trying to do and so more aware of it. And I think the idea was for him not to be in full performance mode, but to be slightly, you know, kind of looking slightly introspective or distracted as if it's not clear whether he's, you know, the actor waiting to go on stage yeah. or Elton waiting to go on into a performance. I, I, again, I think the ambiguity of that makes it a bit more intriguing. And also the multi-layered aspect, because that's Taron Egerton playing Elton John at a period of his life when really Elton John was a character who was played by Reg Dwight. Yes. I mean, it's got that kind of, yes. you know, where, where is the real character yeah. within that painting? Who is the real person? There? Well, that, that's a nice point, actually, um, because I think Elton is one of those amazing performers who definitely goes into performance mode and then is a sort of slightly sort of different person totally. off stage. And so he has that as well. So it's a sort of, it's a, it's a multiple story about, I think, the uh, yeah, complexities of, of, of being a performer, but also the job of doing, of, of do, making a portrait of someone where it's not quite clear who they are or who they're trying to be. So how far are you off finishing this painting? Is <laughs> that whole question again, well, isn't yeah. it? When, when is a painting finished? The thing is, also, I've, I've been, kind of, I keep going away and leaving it and, not, and then coming back and deciding I, um, it's, it's not right. Um, and, you know, there's always a slight chance I might just start it all over again. But I think that it's, it's pretty close. I just, um, like you were saying, my instinct is to go minimal with paintings and only give you the information you absolutely need. I got quite excited about the ridiculousness of the outfit with this one. And all the, all the outfits have been designed as a mashup of his stage outfits from the 70s um, uh, by a brilliant um, uh, costume designer. Uh, um, and it's uh, Julian, um, Julian Day. Um, uh, but by, yeah, so uh, the, uh, the costumes in the film are amazing. Yeah. This one is, is, is one that recurs. There's so many different things going on. 
I just have gone. It's the what's the opposite of minimalism? I, I don't know. It's it's suddenly it's, <laughs> maximalism. Yeah, it's a glam. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a glamorous overloading of detail, uh, and it's you know that's that's it's, it's it's a lot of fun doing something different. And how often are you in here uh, working? Not just on this painting, but other ones. Is it a sort of? Is it a kind of a? A nine to five thing. Do you have to get in at a certain time every day? Is there a working routine in this place? I think I, I think most artists would probably tell you um, the same thing, which is you know you can't be sure which days are going to be the most productive. Right. But unless you're here for a lot, you know, for early enough to take advantage of it, uh, when they, it is a good day, then you 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 you're, 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 you're missing too many opportunities. And so I mean, yes, and I also have family. I tend to you know, treat it like a day. So when I'm in London, I'm here every day. Uh, and if it's going well, I'll work into the evening. If it's not, I'll pack up and go home early. Wonderful. It's looking fantastic. So I better get out your way, let you get on with Taryn as Reg, as Elton. <laughs> when do you give a, a title to a painting, by the way? Do, they, do most of your paintings have titles, or are they just the name of the, the sitter? Uh, it, it varies a bit. I think when, when, there's, when there's a bit more of a story, they sometimes have a bit more of a sort of unplayful title. So that, come, um, that comes yeah. later. It's usually when someone's putting a, a catalogue or book to bed, or, and I haven't given something to someone yet. Um, it's, it's usually done retrospectively. Uh, although sometimes it, it comes along the way, and sometimes people, people offer suggestions. Johnny, thanks so much for that. Back to the painting, I guess, for you, is it? Yes, I, I, I need to get this one finished, so I'm going away again. And, um, and there are, as you can see, lots of other ones that need to be started. But thank you, it's, it's, it's great to see you. You too. Thanks very much. If you enjoyed Jonathan Yeo, have a listen to the other episodes featuring the likes of Paul Weller, Hayley Atwell, Tom O'Dell, Lucy Preble, Kwame Kweyama, Guy Garvey, and there are many more on the way. Please do rate and review these three, and it helps other people find the series. And subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Also, have a look at the website. We've got more information about all of the guests. There are photographs, videos, uh, previews of forthcoming episodes. We're on Twitter and Instagram, of course. These Three is produced and presented by me, John Wilson, in association with Analog Folk. Thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching fashion trends, pep talks where we give advice, mental health moments, and games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>